Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I've got a uh, sore arm, sore head. Been sitting up all bloody night watching. Uh, I started off on Sky Business, then I went from Sky Business to CNN, then I went from CNN to BBC, then I went from BBC to CNBC. And I've been glued to the television looking at this whole Greek thing and listening to all the various commentaries and uh, views and they seem to be all over the place. So today I'm going to have a, I'm going to touch on that um, more, of a, more of a political economic discussion as opposed to just economics. Um, I'll talk, talk about how that's going to affect Australia, what I think, how it's going to affect Australia and, and, and also reflect on how it has affected Australia and the rest of the world so far. Um, I was very pleased, I was extremely pleased and very happy with the responses we got from uh, our uh, interview last week with Captain Richard de Krepney. Um, it was highly received, uh, highly regarded, people left, right and centre tweeting sort of discussions about it. this is a must-see, must-listen, um, and it was, we uh, I did a gratitude to Richard for actually agreeing to come in and do that. And in fact, he's agreed to come in and give us another discussion about his more recent or his, his current works in relation to his new book and uh, I'm definitely going to take him up on that because it seems as though everybody likes to hear what he's got to say. He's a fascinating gentleman and especially on the areas of neuroscience and talking about what the way we function and uh, in a brain sense as opposed to our emotions. This week's top five. Uh, we've got a bit of um, data to cover off. Um, so... Uh, you know, normally we, we go through the RBA stuff um, and the, the, the important things, of course, are unemployment, inflation, trade figures, commodity prices and interest rates. On the employment front, or unemployment front, which I should say, Australia's estimated seasonally adjusted unemployment rate for June was 6%, <clears throat> an increase, I should say, of 0.1% from a revised 59 in May 2015, so year on year, um, uh, it's we are up. In trend terms, unemployment rate has remained unchanged generally, though, at 6%, so that's a good thing. Um, well, I should say it's not good or bad. It's not good if you're bloody unemployed, that's for sure. Um, but it's a good thing in terms of overall economic uh, data. It means it's trending at, at the current rate. It's not going up, it's not going down, so it's sort of under control, which the RBA would be happy with. 
Um, and what we would hope to think that is the result of the RBA's policy, keeping interest rates low, which pushes the Aussie dollar down. The Aussie dollar down would be helping um, exporters and exporters therefore should be, uh, Australian exporters, that is people who manufacture stuff in Australia, should be employing more people. That's the general purpose of keeping interest rates low and uh, keeping the Aussie dollar down so that uh, we can build up a manufacturing industry and maybe that is actually starting to kick in and starting to help us is to employ people in that uh, area. I know one thing for sure in my game in financial services, that's not the case. We are not employing people. We're, you know, we are, generally speaking, financial services companies are, um, are culling staff So uh, and so are mining companies. Mining companies are not. So I expect what the Reserve Bank governor is trying to get happen here is that um, the manufacturing industry is starting to employ people. So maybe that's the result of the, uh, the outcome of the 6%. Um, seasonally adjusted labour force participation rate increased by less than 0.1 percentage point. So that's, again, a neither here nor there. Home loan figures, um, we've had lower home loan lending for the month of June and the month of May than we've had for a long, long time. They are significantly, significantly down across the board. Now, that is also a reflection on what the regulator has done to banks and people like us telling us that they don't want us to lend as much money to borrowers anymore as we have done in the past. So there's a whole new set of rules as to what they call loan-to-value ratios. In other words, the amount we can lend on a property to an individual. Two things will now affect it. There is a blanket rule across the board that lenders are going to limit the amount of money they lend on an investment property, not the one you live in, an investment property, to around 80% of the value of the land, or the value of the house, so should house and land, uh, or the purchase price. So that's a new change. That's significant. Nearly every lender is employing that that criteria. So that means less money per transaction will be lent. The second thing is that that has been... uh, put in place by the regulator, and I think it's a responsible one, is that when we work out how much money you can borrow, in other words, what is your ability to service debt, we are now not working on 5% interest rates or 4% interest rates or whatever the prevailing rate is. We are working on a rate that assumes a number of rate rises. So we are working on around 68 to 7.2% is the interest rate we are working on to determine how much money we can lend you. So the net effect of that is we will lend you less money. Not just us, everybody across the board. That's a new regulation. So it's no surprise to me that the numbers in terms of lending are down, which is what the regulator is trying to achieve. There are a number of transactions that are the same. What the regulator is trying to do is say, okay, I'll lend, you can only lend X amount of dollars for these properties from now on. That is to keep the financial system stable, one, Two, that is to make sure we don't impair the value of the assets. I'm not talking about the land, but I'm talking about the mortgage assets in the marketplace. That's very important in in a financial stability environment. And also what this will do is actually will start to direct traffic a little bit more back to owner-occupiers and away from investors, which is a good thing. We want a bigger mix of owner-occupiers in the country than we do just investors. All good structural stuff. It'll have a little bit of impact for a couple of months. It'll settle itself down and it'll be back to normal business. So good news. Um, not good news if you're trying to borrow too much money, but that generally means if everybody can't borrow across the board a lot of money, that means the house prices should remain steady and maybe we can stop this sort of uh, crazy increase in house prices in certain parts of Australia, particularly in Sydney. Uh, the next piece of data, that which is, I found quite interesting, is the, uh, the RBA has put out a, uh, a document to say that 
in Australia, house prices in a relative sense are 30% undervalued. Now, that is sort of an interesting discussion. Of course, they're talking about in Australia, they're not talking about in Sydney, they're not talking about in Hurstville or Chatswood or uh, Vaucluse or Wallara, they're talking about Australia. So that bear in mind only Sydney is the one that's skyrocketing in terms of growth. The other major cities are not. And then, of course, outside of the major cities, you've got smaller regions. Uh, they're definitely not growing. So there is logic and sense in what the Reserve Bank says. They are saying that relative to previous periods, house prices in Australia are 30% undervalued. Now, the way they work this is they say, what is the amount of rent I have to pay to live in a house relative to the amount of interest I have to pay to buy that house? That's the measure, and it makes sense. Interest rates are at an all-time low, all-time low. So it makes sense that it is cheaper to borrow than it is to rent. So what they're saying is, Houses are more thirty percent more affordable today than they have been in the past. And the reason for that is that rents have not gone down. In fact, rents have gone up, and that's a, a function of the amount of property available for rent and the number of people who want to rent it. So supply and demand. And we ha- and then you uh, relative that is rel- uh, that is uh, overlaid against the very low interest rates it costs today to buy a new property. So across Australia, houses are thirty percent more affordable than they have been in the past. And bear in mind. It doesn't mean houses are cheap. It means that there is a relative argument. It means given interest rates being so low, it's actually 30% more affordable to buy and have a mortgage than it is to go and rent. So let's keep the context around this because a lot of commentators have gone a bit berserk over this and said, how dare the Reserve Bank say that when house prices are growing at these rates in Sydney and various other places. It's a relative discussion. It's about affordability relative to renting. Affordability of owning relative to renting or the affordability of borrowing relative to renting. And the reason our rents are so high is because there's a shortage of supply of properties, particularly in places like Sydney. So in other words, developers just don't see the incentive to go out and develop things anymore and build new, new build new estates and new houses and build new apartment blocks, et cetera. This is just too hard in this country because councils won't let you do anything. Banks won't lend you the, money, the developer the money to build a bloody thing. And then they make the developer sell, sell it all before he even uh, lays the first stone. So, you know, there, there's a problem with the development funding model and the development approval model and the development time it takes, it, uh, there's just not enough donor for them. So you're not seeing many new developments going on. So you're not getting any new supply, but you're getting plenty of people arriving in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane for jobs. Uh, okay. Um, the, uh, the other thing I want to converse, uh, cover off is the NAB Business Confidence Survey. Now, this survey came out before uh, the China share market drop recently. That's an important one. So you've got to make sure you keep it in context. And the other thing that this survey came out is before the Greek government recovery, the debt recovery package which was put to the Greeks recently. So um, Alan Oster um, saying that, basically saying that the uh, business confidence has jumped to a 22-month high as conditions improve. One suggestion that that this business confidence increase has been brought about by the the so-called business budget of the Abbott government or Hockey's so-called business budget or uh, Bruce Bilson's so-called business budget. Um, you know, obviously it's a contributing factor. Uh, another um, commentary is saying that this business confidence is a tr- increase in business confidence is attributable to the export market 
or the manufacturing market in Australia who exports um, becoming more confident because of where the Aussie dollar is lower and uh, predict, predictions are saying that it'll go even lower again. Um, that's that's an important point. Uh, who knows what, what, what the attribution is? It doesn't really matter. Business confidence is, at the moment, is high. I would say, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I would say that business confidence is very surface-driven. It's not really doesn't have much depth, and it is based on what we read in the newspapers and we hear on television. Um, the business confidence now is about um, what's happening in the world and what's happening in our little microcosm. You know, in other words, I'm a manufacturer in Victoria, and what's happening in my microcosm. In other words, I, could, I just bought a car and I got a twenty thousand dollars tax deduction for it, or I bought a piece of equipment and I was get twenty thousand tax deduction straight away. Um, it, I think it's also brought on by. Uh, uh, oh, the Aussie dollar is low. It's really low at the moment, relatively speaking. Um, I'm getting more um, uh, more punch for my uh, for my investment. So you know, as I produce more stuff, I'm getting a better return because I get a higher US dollar return if I'm selling in the US or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, but what they're not doing is not looking at things like why the Aussie dollar is down. The Aussie dollar is down because we're a commodity driven currency. We're an interest rate driven currency. Our interest rates are low because there's a problem in our economy. And the second thing is that um, um, our, our dollar is down because, as I said earlier, we're a commodity-driven country. So commodity prices are down. Why are commodity prices down? Well, we've got to look at China and what's going on in China. So, you know, like commodity prices are down because there is an issue. China looks like it's not going to order as much of our iron ore. And iron ore prices are down for that reason. So we have to start to ask ourselves a question, is that a good thing, the lower Aussie dollar, or is it not a good thing? You know, it's all very well for us to get sort of caught up in our increase in business confidence because you know the, the Aussie dollar's down and we're exporting at a better rate. But that's very short term. We've got to know we've got to know if these things are sustainable. And you, I want to scratch a little bit below the surface a bit later on. Okay, we have a number of uh, videos that are coming on YouTube. Uh, for the eagle's nest. Um, now, be- let's bear in mind, let's just get things in a context, context now. The eagle's nest is our concept, our business in this podcast to build an environment for small business owners, budding entrepreneurs, startups to vie for the opportunity to come in here into the studio and be filmed pitching to me in a three-minute pitch of their business idea and or their concept and to ask me what it is they want to know. In other words, do they need to borrow money? Do they need investors? Are they looking for mentorship? Are they looking just to bounce ideas off us? And the eagle's nest, in contrast to what goes on in the shark tank, the eagle's nest is here to nurture, help, encourage, uh, great performance, great ideas, uh, great entrepreneurs, and hopefully that this has a, a viral effect such that people all around the country start building up these great nesting environments to look after the entrepreneur in this country. And there's a whole lot of reasons why we want to do it. I'm not going to get into those. They're economic, they are humanitarian, they're you know just philosophical from my point of view. But that's what Eagles Nest is about. So we are getting lots of YouTube videos that I'm reviewing and next week I intend to call someone in to do um, our podcast and have that person filmed in front of us after that particular individual um, uh, 
pitches their three minutes worth of uh, ideas to us. At the end of the period, I'm going to give $10,000 to the winner. There's going to be one winner and I'm going to give $10,000 to them. Equally, I'm trying to give advice as I go through. So what have we got for this week? Jess, who have we got? First up, Mark, we have uh, Roger, who runs a company with a partner called Toro, And it's uh, unique, high-quality men's leather goods, watches, crystal tumblers, decanters, candles, you name it. Uh, but what they're trying to set up is a, a destination online store, and this is a quote from Roger, helping men rediscover what it once meant to be a gentleman. So basically, they stock two or three of the of the best products, taking the hassle out of shopping online. They launched 10 months ago. Growth has been slow. People love the range, but no one knows that they exist. They're looking for mentoring and guidance. In fact, they would like you to come on board as an ambassador. They believe that uh, you operate with some of the old school values that they are trying to pass on to young men. Okay, well, that, that's great. Um, <clears throat> look, I, I sort of... I don't know about uh, old school values. Um, I like to think my values are current values, to be frank with you. Um, uh, well, that's very nice that they uh, flattered me. Um, I guess their objective is to get me on board um, as an ambassador. Unfortunately, I can't do that because I already have ambassador roles with various companies, um, which probably would be in conflict to theirs, particularly in relation to uh, watches, etc. But thank you very much for making that offer to me. But actually, I'm not the one who's looking for something. You're the one who's looking for something. So... Uh, I just think you should assume that uh, I'm not after something from you. Um, you guys are after something from me or and all the broader community community who listens to this. And by the way, if you're someone who's listening to our podcast, you can go onto YouTube and see that video. Can they see that video? Yeah. Yes. Um, how do they look at that one? We can put it up on your website. We can put a link to markboris.com.au. Okay. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to invest in this company or you're interested in uh, you know, taking something up with this particular company, um, please feel free to once you uh, look, at the, 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 look at the YouTube video. So Roger Skibris, Gallantoro. Um, I like the name, Gallantry. Uh, I guess it is very old school. Now, I don't know if there's a huge market for this. Um, there's plenty of luxury good providers in this country, around the world for that matter, and you know, to be frank with you, online now is around the world, so you can look at all the luxury providers, and all the luxury providers are, it's a pretty edgy sort of marketplace, they're continually tweaking their product and changing their product and upgrading and upskilling the people who are actually producing their product, changing prices, and then you have a lot of serious brands that you're trying to take on. So if Galantoro is going to um, compete with, say, I don't know, Rolex or... Uh, IWC in terms of watches or, uh, I don't know, I don't, you know, leather goods companies, etc. It's a pretty lofty desire. I mean, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I applaud your uh, lofty goals. I think that's fantastic. This is going to require, though, equivalent budgets, unless you've got some way of sneaking under their guard. This is going to require equivalent budgets. And I just think it's going to be a very tough road for you. I, I, I think you probably should try become more uh, unique do something totally different. Keep the old school values, that's good, uh, but uh, have something totally unique and different and niche yourself. That way you're not trying to have massive marketing campaigns which cost massive amounts of money to compete with the likes of Rolex, etc. who, like, seriously, they spend a lot of dough. And most people, it's way, way outside most startups' reach. And you'll never get there. You won't take any market share from them. You've got to create something really unique here and uh, 
you know, I, I guess you've got the good creative skills and, you, and it looks like you've got the, uh, you know, the guts and the fortitude and the courage to have a crack. I like that. And I think you've got a good theme going on there, you know, old school values. I think you probably need to um, disseminate what the values are and how they reflect in what you wear or how what you wear reflects in your values. Um, I think you need to do a bit more of that, a bit more work on that. As to me being ambassador, guys, uh, it's not likely because I, I got enough ambassador arrangements at the moment and uh, I would be in breach of that and you wouldn't want me to be in breach of that because that wouldn't be a very good old school value. Uh, so, uh, look, it's a, it's a pretty good YouTube video. Um, probably could be a bit more polished up. Uh, I still didn't quite get what unique, your unique proposition is. I still just don't get it. Um, maybe you should uh, work on that presentation a little bit more and uh, but probably you need to sit down and work out what your unique proposition is and what are the old school values you're talking about. And I just want to make one reflection on old school values. Old school values should be new school values. I mean, the values never change. They're not old, they're not new. They're always the same. Values are values. They, they, you know, been, they go back thousands and thousands of years and they'll go on for thousands and thousands of years. So it's just one of those things that never changes. Watches change, handbags change, leather jackets change, clothes change, their fashion. Values never change and they stay the way they've always been and they will always be. Okay, what's next? Next, Mark, is Alex Brownbill, and he runs a company called Voyage Financial in Western Australia. And basically, he wants to do with his business what you have achieved. Uh, he's a mortgage broker. He was at Aussie Home Loans, KPMG. He did financial planning. It wasn't his forte, so he got in a, a business partner to help with that side of things. Uh, he's looking for an accountant. He's targeting young medics. So the idea is he, he kind of gets in with them from university all the way through. He wants to know, how, how do I grow into a large financial company? Well, that's an interesting one. Um, to be frank with you, I don't know if I really want to give you the secret because um, that's what I do. <laughs> uh, well, look, Alex, you've got a, a – it you, you, sounds like you want to be um, a very much a niche player in the medical industry – so as students come out of universities or even whilst they're at university, what you're trying to do is appeal to them to do their accounts, their financial planning, their lending, and just all their financial management. So therefore, you need all the skills of the, of, to, in order to supply that demand. But just doing one niche of a market is not going to get you to become a big financial advisory business like, say, Yellow Brick Road is or like Wizard was. Um, those businesses are broad-based. They cover all parts of the market. They cover every city in Australia or every every major city in Australia. And, in fact, in the Wizard business, all of New Zealand and parts of India. Um, so you've got to have a broad-based product offering and or service offering. And to do that, <clears throat> you need to build a brand, and uh, the, the brand, the name has to be simple, has to be rem- memorable. And to do that, you have to have either lots of money or a partner. And uh, in my case, I had Channel 9 as my partner in both Wizard and now in Yellow Brick Road. So that helps you me build a broad-based marketing branded appeal. And the product suite that I'm offering is a broad-based suite. Um, so... Whilst it was a monoline product for Wizard, just mortgages, it was a broad-based mortgage product. In other words, it covered most Australians who wanted to borrow money. Um, in terms of 
Yellow Big Road, we offer, like you're talking about, we offer a, all those things you want to offer to medics, we offer that across the, the field to everybody. doesn't matter whether you're a medical student or a doctor or a dentist or a plumber or an electrician or someone working in the public service. It doesn't really matter. We offer it to everybody. So you want to build a big financial services business, and I assume what you mean by that is lots of people, big balance sheet, lots of profit, lots of turnover. I think that's what you mean by big business. Then you need to have something that appeals to the masses, and you need to make it. You need to get it out there to the masses. You have to tell the masses, and that's where partners become very important. Now, a partner is not going to invest in your business unless they think they can. There's upside for them. There's money in it for them, and you have to convince them that uh, you know you got the ability to make this a big business. Because you know, most big organisations like Channel Nine, they don't invest in small businesses. They invest in businesses that are going to become huge. And they need to be convinced of that. And again, they need to look at your product suite, they look, look at your service suite, they look, need to look at your skills and ability to deliver on that product suite and the service suite, and they need to know what your proposition is. So I think you need to expand out your product line, your service line, your skill base, come up with a name that's easily marketable, and then going st- and then start to pitch it to the big, in my view, the big uh, media groups. Now, not all the media groups in this country are interested in investing in financial services. Um, News Limited tried it many years ago. Um, they're sort of doing it at the moment with OneView, um, which is a, um, a financial planning platform. Um, they're sort of doing that through uh, uh, a part of the News Limited group. Uh, Fairfax have tried it and don't do it anymore. Uh, Seven have never really done it. Um, Murdoch did it many, many years ago and then pulled out. News Limited, that is, um, in, in terms of, like, branding. Channel 9, obviously, is doing it with me, uh, Yellow Brick Road, so you probably won't, they probably won't make a double investment. Channel 10, I think, uh, it's just not their game. Uh, so the, the media partners are sort of limited, so it's going to be difficult, and maybe the, the, the horse is bolted. Another way you could do it is build something that's really interesting and maybe take it to one of the big banks and get them to partner with, a bit like what CBA has done with Aussie Home Loans and now, now owns Aussie Home Loans, but... You know, that, that did work for Aussie back in 2008 when he did the first deal with uh, CBA. So, you know, that, that might work, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of competition around there, mate. Uh, you're Perth-based, so it's a small market. You need to get over the eastern states, which is, you know, the big game, which is where the numbers are, where the people are. Uh, you know, and that means, you know, prom- probably means you need to relocate or find a partner who's going to set you up over here. It's a tough one. It's the toughest industry I've ever been involved in financial services. It is the most cutthroat game there is. Uh, and you're dealing with big, big organisations who are ruthless these days who just carve you up if they get the opportunity. So give it some thought. You've probably got a bloody great lifestyle over there. You're probably brilliant at what you do in relation to the medical fraternity. You've probably got a really good, comfortable relationship with your partner who's doing a good job. You live in one of, you know, God's country in Perth. I mean, it's one of the best places in the world to live particularly if you've got a family, give some thought before you walk into the, uh, and, uh, into the arena and someone's going to try and cut your throat. So uh, give plenty of thought. Good luck, mate. Next. Mark, next is uh, Celeste Fultine, and she has a company called Apri Made. She's producing a, a product. It's jelly bush honey. So it's like the uh, New Zealand uh, manuka honey, and it's to make beauty products as well as using the honey. Um, she's looking at two paths, retail in uh, health food stores and hoping to export it globally as well to markets including Dubai and China. Uh, she needs a, a, a marketing, she needs a website, she needs marketing, she needs guidance, she needs mentorship. Uh, she needs a lot. She's hoping to launch in October. 
Well, Celeste, um, your product, I mean, I, like, I, I, mean, I, I had the flu um, and I went and got some of that um, Manuka honey from New Zealand Manuka honey, or well, at least that's what the label said, I hope it was. Um, and by the way, that's part of the pro- problem. Um, you never know really whether the hype is equal to the product or the content. Um, I never really know whether or not I've actually got Manuka honey. I, th- there's no system of uh, stamping to say that this is the real deal or certification. I just don't know. Um, I'm assuming um, um, bush jelly bush honey is equivalent to Manuka honey. I mean, I, I, you give me no proof, but I think you need to have on your website a big story about how this is important. You'd probably need to get someone like CNBC or, I don't know, somebody either in Asia or some other place to do a story on you to say this is a new great discovery and it's equivalent to Manuka honey, if it is. And you need to have somebody to endorse that. It needs to be scientific. Um, You know, I would like to see some scientists get up and say, well, you know, what Celeste is talking about is the greatest discovery since whatever um, and that this has these properties. You haven't really told me what the properties are. You need to tell your market what the properties are and why the properties are beneficial to us. Now, all this organic stuff is very, very important. It has a high take-up rate. And, you know, people in Asia, everywhere around the world, want to take up these things and uh, try them out. But you have to be able to tell the story. And I don't think you've really told the story yet. You're telling me that you're, you're, it's more about – this is not a like selling widgets where, you know, there's a great markup in it. And uh, you're telling – but that's the story you're telling me. It's not just about getting a website – this is about something that um, ha- has health benefits, potential health benefits, and actually may cure something or may not cure something. You need – so the game here for you is you should be selling me and or whoever you're talking to, you should be selling me on the properties, the health properties of this, endorsed by someone else because I don't know. You may be a scientist, I don't know, or a biochemist. I don't know the answer to that. But if, if you're not, you need to have someone of that ilk who is well-recognised, endorsing the properties of the product that you're trying to sell and why is it better? Is it cheaper? I'm a bit like our coffee capsule uh, um, YouTube submission a couple of weeks ago. The coffee was equivalent in terms of taste. The coffee was equivalent in terms of the effect of caffeine. The coffee was equivalent in terms of the amount of coffee you got in a cup per per pod. The difference was this coffee was cheaper than what you would get if you bought an espresso coffee. Now, you've got to come up with the same sort of program. Is bush honey, jelly bush honey, is it equivalent to manuka honey? That's your benchmark. One, in terms of taste, is it palatable? Are the properties equivalent? And where's your pricing sit? And then who is it out there that's going to endorse this? Because everyone knows what Manuka Honey does because it's already been endorsed. Who's going to endorse this for you? I, I mean, Celeste, you're not – I don't think it's going to be you. You can, you can promote it and, and, and be enthusiastic about it, but it has to have someone with substance standing behind it in a biochemistry sense to say this is the greatest thing that's ever been found and it's Australian or wherever it comes from. Explain to people how it's grown, where it's grown, how's it harvested – um, you know, do you get one drop per, you know, 50 hours of harvesting? I don't know. It's got to have some rareness about it. Now, you're right. The Asians will take this stuff because they love rare stuff. I mean, look at some of the weird stuff they have in those uh, Chinese medicines places. You know, it's all pretty rare stuff. You know, they climb to the top of the mountain plucking out nests, birds' nests, and they're making soup out of them. So, you know, this is, could be equally as uh, 
rare and uh, exotic. Sounds exotic. Come up with an exotic name. And yeah, maybe you're going to get something away. I reckon it's too early for you to launch in October. You've got a lot of work to do. Um, but I'm sure, you know, if you can express the things that I've just discussed, I'm sure you'll do a good job. And the last one, Mark, is, uh, is Maria. And uh, I must preface this by saying she thinks maybe she's come to you a little bit early, but she still wanted to run the idea past you. She facilitates training courses. She's also a sculptor and she has degrees in environmental science and education. Uh, she wanted to pitch to you after you shared your interest in neuroscience. Maria's putting together a program which she describes as the intersection of arts and science. She says individuals don't know how to tap into their creative instincts and therefore workplaces don't have a creative culture. She quotes a, an IBM survey that says 1,500 worldwide CEOs say creativity is the most important leadership quality they need. Maria's developing this method to support that mindset that leads to skills and behaviour and actions to become more creative. Her market research has so far found that uh, big business is interested and she wants to ask you if, if this is a marketable business and will small businesses be interested? Well, I, I think what you're, you're talking about is quite, quite interesting. Um, I don't know if it's relevant to me at all, to be frank with you, whether you're a sculptor or degrees in environmental science and education. That's not about – that's quite a good little background thing. But I, I will put up on, on our website a link – to the Harvard Business Review, and it's called, and the, the topic is your brain at work. Now, what you're talking about here is is now a global topic, um, and it's not it's not new. And and this whole sense of neuroscience, I didn't invent it. It's not, and nor did Richard Decrepney, and uh, it's been around for a while now. And whilst you you are onto something which could be rolled out in Australia and other places, just bear in mind it's not new. And uh, I, I guess you've done enough research on this. Um, but it's suddenly the raging current topic. And what they're talking about is building better workplace environments to enhance creativity. For example, some of the big companies like Apple and Google and all those sorts of places, they have a day, a month, or sometimes they have a week, a year, or they'll have like, like a brain-free day where you can actually not go in and do any of your procedural stuff at work and you can actually sit there and just think about what you want to think about, what's on your mind. You know, and do, But, you know, it's got to be productive. You've got to do some research and produce maybe a paper or at the end of the day and just just sort of kick the grass around and uh, think about stuff. And uh, you can do it in groups, you can do it in pods, you can do it in as an individual. And I think as a workplace initiative for creativity, I think it's very important. It's something that I'm thinking about in, um, introducing into my businesses at the moment. Um, I think it's a, gr- it's a great uh, initiative and I, and I really th- – and it should be available to everybody, not just senior executives. This is not a senior executive off-site, you know. Uh, what about the other executives or the non-executives, so-called non-executives, you know, not the big guys? Everybody's got good ideas in a business and I think we've got to encourage those a lot more because the creativity comes out of the business, not just – you can't be doing it all yourself if you're the CEO and or the general manager or even if you're just the line manager. So I think this process is – uh, this neuroscientific process of rewarding people, rewarding people's creativity by giving them a day to do it, is really important. It's a great initiative. I like what you're talking about. I agree with you. You are far too early in your uh, development curve to to sort of put up a pitch. Um, but I also would urge you to go and look at the uh, the link I'm going to put up on our website 
to the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. Now, bear in mind, there's a lot of quackery around about this too. There's, you know, equally when something becomes trendy and new or allegedly new, then all the pundits who think they're experts who want to promote themselves as an expert on a particular aspect start to surround the new idea and there's a lot of quackery. So whatever you do, it should be scientifically based and it should be scientifically backed up. And I think that um, some of the stuff I'm reading at the moment about neuroscientists is just killing me because it's just such bullshit and, and unscientific, it's ridiculous. And people are coming up with all sorts of mad theories about why something happens, why we do something, why our brain does something, and it's just unproven. So the Harvard Business Review actually goes through four well-known um, behavioural aspects of our brain that actually are quite interesting and they drive straight those four things straight into creativity and creativity around the workplace, So, which is sort of what you're talking about. So maybe go and have a look at that and um, see how you go and keep developing let me know what you're doing. But it's pretty cool. I like it. What's on my mind? So normally we do a, a segment, what's on been on my mind, and uh, I was going to talk about sort of structures and business and stuff like that, but... To be frank, and that was sort of in the schedule, but to be frank with you, I mean, I sat up all night last night watching television, you know, stupidly. Um, so probably what's on my mind now and right at this moment is the Greek crisis or the potential European crisis around Greece. And just I just wanted to give a context where it all fits in. What does it all mean? So the greatest engineering room in the world today is the United States of America. And the US is going through a recovery and actually probably the only country in the world that's actually recovering from the GFC at this point. Now, some recovered early, some didn't actually have a GFC, like Australia didn't really have one. Uh, US definitely had one. It had the worst. It was the worst affected. But it is recovering and it's doing quite well. And their Reserve Bank governor equivalent has been talking for some time about increasing interest rates. Now, interest rates in the US are at an, at an all-time low, so which have been there to stimulate their economy. So they're talking about increasing interest rates. But the thing that seems to be holding them back is the increase in interest rates is what happens in Europe and, in particular, what happens to Greece. So contextually, the Greek, so-called the Greek crisis in a global sense is actually affecting what happens in the US Because as soon as the US decides to increase interest rates, in other words, the globe, the world is stable and US starts increasing interest rates, the US dollar will kick off. And as the US dollar kicks off, it will push the relative Australian dollar down. So our exchange rate will change, we'll go lower, the Aussie dollar will go lower. So, which is actually has an effect on us economically. So there is a stall in relation to where the Aussie dollar will go relative to the US dollar based on what's happening in the European environment. So that's really important. The other thing that's really important about Greece, and I just want to make this absolutely crystal clear, economically, we do not, we do very, 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 very little, totally insignificant trade with Greece, Australia does. And Greece in return does very, very, very little uh, importing and or exporting to us. So there's in fundamental terms, uh, highly unlikely to have any impact on our Australia's economics. But it does have an impact on our markets. 
And the two major markets that what's going on in Greece uh, is affecting us at the moment is one, our share market and all the bond markets, which most of you probably don't trade in, but definitely the share markets. And equally, uh, just general sentiment about how we feel about our future. So we reach, and, and the effect is not going to be long-term or fundamental. The effect is more around volatility. So we saw last week the Australian market just collapsed when the Greeks defaulted. Then this week, Monday, yesterday, the market's recovered when there was a so-called package put up by the, by the Europeans to the Greeks. So what we're going to experience in terms of what is the effect on Australia is market volatility. Because, and I don't think – so the most important question is how long will it take for us to get a sustained result such that our volatility disappears in relation to the Australian share markets? How long will that take? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to come back to that in a second because that becomes a political question and we'll come back to the politics of all this. But I'm just trying to build some context around it. I've been thinking about it all night. Where, what does this all mean for us? And then there's the so-called contagion effect. If Greece exits the Eurozone or if Greece does not accept the uh, propositions that have been put to it by the Europeans, is there a potential contagion effect into Italy and into Spain and into Portugal with those, the so-called pigs of Europe? It's a terrible word, but you know, that's, what, that's a terrible acronym, but that's what we've been calling them. Um, uh, and I don't think that is the case because Greece seems to be in the worst of all the circumstances and it doesn't seem to be that the other countries are going to default the same way the Greeks have. And the Greeks have a particular political environment which sort of enabled it to default. It was sort of built to default. The other countries don't have that um, environment and, uh, and, and, and the other countries have export businesses and they have other things going for them other than just... Um, being a tourism industry like Greece is. So Greece has no fundamental businesses going on. I mean, it, it's, it's a tourism-driven economy and doesn't have – they don't produce oil, they don't produce gas, they don't, they're not exporters of uh, manufactured products, they don't compete with China, they're not like – they don't build cars, they don't really do anything. I mean, they produce marble and uh, feta and olives and uh, tourism, great tourism, to be frank with you, but it's probably the best place in the world to go to. Um, but that's, that's it. So – Let's, so what it really means, what it tells me is that you really got to then hone in just on Greece. Now, who's going to be affected if Greece does default? Well, let's put the Greeks aside for a minute because there'll be a problem in Greece. But there are lots of European banks who invested lots of money into Greece. So if you're a big shareholder in some of the German banks um, and they've got big exposure to Greece, unless they've already dealt with that exposure, in other words, provision against it, that might affect the German uh, financial stability, the financial stability in the German economy and or the French economy because they lent money to Greece too. So maybe you, you're going to look at what effect that's going to have on certain uh, markets again um, in relation to, you know, are people going to lose money on this? And, you know, there'd be big funds around the world who have invested in some of these German banks. But, you know, those funds, they lose a bit of money. It's probably not going to be that significant. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about hundreds of billions. We're talking about tens of billions here, and I know that sounds a lot of money, but in terms of spreading that amongst all the big funds and hedge funds around the world who are investors in these banks, it's not significant, not that significant. 
So we're not going to get another Lehman's Brothers out of this, for example, and we're not going to get any, you know, a, a bad Bank of America problem or, uh, you know, we're not going to get that sort of problem again out of Greece because it's, fortunately, it's smaller than Israel, Greece. It's, it's 11 million people live there and it's a very small economy because, because they don't export, they don't produce anything. So, you know, by virtue, in a funny way, it's actually because Greece is so lame in terms of their, the way they operate, um, it's actually a good thing because the effect, net effect should be less. And it's, even in Europe, Greece's net effect is very small, other than some people lose some money as a result of investing there. Of course, and if they, they, if they go from the euro to the drachma, in other words, get kicked out and they lose the European, the, the euro, um, people who have bought real estate in Greece will lose money because, uh, you know, their, pro- their house or property or whatever it is they're investing in will no longer be valued in euros, it'll be valued in drachmas. And the drachmas, you know, is, will have a, a tough time for a long time. Sometimes you've got to take the pain up front and upset a lot of people and actually maybe going back to drachmas is a better outcome for Greece. The political environment is the thing that's driving all the drama. Greece has been dogged with socialist governments for since World War II. And as a result of being dogged with these socialist governments and smatterings of communism and smatterings of Nazism or nationalist parties, its political uh, system has been lopsided and the socialist environment has got set in over a long period of time. And as a result of that, you have all these bad practices that go on in there, bad behaviour that go on in the country. And they're set in because of the, the political environment allowed that to happen. So what what I think the European are the Europeans are asking the Greeks to do in such a short period of time is actually undo something that's been stitched up over 50 years. I think it's like virtually impossible. I don't think people can get their head around it. So I think that either the Europeans have to extend the period of reform to for a couple of years or at least extend the period to adopt the so-called reform package for, for like a 12-month period, give them a moratorium, like a bridging loan for a 12-month period whilst they get their act together and maybe having a few elections and you know, move Chipras out or Chipras can shore himself up within his party so he can deliver because right now a two- or three-day package is just impossible. And I don't see that. And by the way, equally, it, it, the, the Europeans shouldn't be too hard-headed with this because if Greece just says, oh, forget it, we're not doing it, well, guess who loses? The Europeans, not Greece because Greece already got the dough. So the lender loses, not the borrower. Um, you know, that's, that's the oldest trick in the book because the Greeks say, well, okay, we've got your money, thanks very much, we can't pay it back. We've got the infrastructure we built, thanks very much, but we can't pay it back. So what happens then? Do the Germans then come and – they don't have a mortgage over Greece, although they're trying to get a mortgage over Greece at the moment, but they don't have a mortgage over Greece. So they can't walk in and take all the properties from them. What they can do is they can stop supplying money to the Greeks and the Greeks – will not be able to draw the money out of the bank because the Greek banks are broke in terms of cash, and which means Greece will fall into a depression, a serious, serious depression, 1930s style, you know, where you will have 30 to 40 to 50% unemployment. But that won't get the money back for the Europeans. It doesn't achieve anything. And by the way, it doesn't then create a social reform, reform environment either because all you're going to ha- do is open the doors into the radical parties to start to get a better foothold into Greece. And then all of a sudden you're going to start getting a blame game going on and I guarantee they're going to blame the Germans. So it's not going to achieve anything for Germany to be the, take the high moral ground and start to lord over Greece in relation to what they've done wrong and etc. It just doesn't work. So... I think they're heading for a massive clash and a massive stoush. That's the way I see it. 
And I think Chipras has built himself in a position, that's the Prime Minister there, built himself in a position to resign gracefully because he's got the no vote and he can't deliver. And, and he's got dissension within his own party. It looks like a mess to me. And I don't understand how the Australian share market recovered off the back of the fact that Greece was offered a bailout plan. The question is, can the bailout plan be executed? And I get, my gut feeling is it can't be executed. I just can't, I don't, but if it's not executed, that's a disaster too. But if it is executed, that's a disaster too. So you can't, you can't lend money to somebody and then hold a gun to their head and put them in the corner and say, look, for the next 30 years, you're going to be punished for this. That's like reparation. You know, that's like what happened after World War II. That's what Germany had to do after, you know, destroying half the world. So I really don't see this as, and this is a financial contract. This is an economic deal that was done between Greece and all the other countries. This wasn't Greece going to war with somebody. This is where people threw money at it and said, here, oh, we'd like to lend you some money. We'll lend you some money. Go and invest it in railways and all these sorts of things. They did, a lot of this investment was used to build Greece for the Athens Olympics in 2004. Now, to some extent, and I'm not trying to take sides here, particularly because of my Greek heritage, I'm not, to some extent, the lender's responsible because the lender should have sat down and worked out how is Greece ever going to pay us back? What the hell have they got to pay us back? How are they going to do this? They should have had a look at the system then. They knew the system was broken then. So why the hell did they lend them the money in the first place? Now what they're saying to Greece is give us 50 billion euros. That's $100 billion worth of security to secure our debts, our debts to you. Well, what are they, what's Greece going to do? Hand the Parthenon over to them? Or, or are they going to hand over uh, Mykonos and say, look, you can own Mykonos? Or like the Greek people go mental. I mean, and by the way, who'd want to see that? Who'd want to see another country own your icons? I mean, it's like us, you know, if someone said to us, well, give us the Opera House and give us all of Arnhem Land, do you think, how do you think we're going to react? There's no way. We're telling to fuck off. So I don't see, I mean, these, this stuff is dumb. Um, Greece's airport, give us the airport. Well, so what? You've got the airport. You own the airport. I don't really understand this whole process. So it seems to me all over the shop. And I think where, you know, Chipper's, is like using game theory. He he went to the election, uh, sought a refer- referendum to get a yes or no vote, got the no vote. That would have pissed off the, the, the Europeans. So the Europeans are going to say, okay, well, you don't think you're outsmart. It's become a game of who's trying to outsmart each other. And they're not being commercial. They're not being realistic. So, that you know, like, you don't, you, you know, you don't go and poke a bear, which is what the Greeks did. They went and poked the German bear. And the German bear said, well, we're the biggest guys in Europe here. Uh, we're, the, we're the big deal. Um, don't poke us, otherwise we'll punish you. Now, they're punishing them. And Greece cannot out-intellectualise a whole lot of European countries who have got a lot at stake. It's just not going to happen. So I really don't know what the answer to all this is, and I started thinking through it, and I thought, well, what are the effects of all this? I don't have to solve it. I don't have to solve it for Cyprus, um, and I don't have to solve it for anybody, but what are the effects of this? Well, the effects of this is this stall is it'll uh, keep US from increasing its interest rates, which means our, expo- our, our Aussie dollar won't go down further relative to the US dollar and therefore our exporters won't have the advantage that we need them to have to build a better manufacturing industry in this country, which means we have, more, we have a better employment environment, unemployment environment. That's the first thing. Second thing is it's going to create um, further regulatory changes in the Europe and probably through the rest of the world as to how sovereign powers lend to other sovereign powers and, and, and it'll make the rating agencies go and have a look at a lot of the ratings of other governments around the world. So Australia is rated AAA. Um, you know, people are going to start to say, well, 
we're lending to Australia. Should we lend to Australia anymore? And, uh, on, and, and if so, what's the rating of Australia? And should that rating be reviewed based on our deficits and our ability to repay? So a bit like the GFC, the GFC changed the way we lend money to people to buy houses. I think all this could change the way sovereigns interact with each other. One sovereign country like, you know, the uh, um, United States would lend to another country like Australia and start to re-rate countries, and which means money costs more for countries to borrow. In other words, if we got re-rated from AAA to AA-, Australian government would have to borrow money from other places at a higher rate, which means Australia would be paying greater interest rate, which means that we'd have to gather more taxes, which means you, the punter, will be paying more tax. So who knows what's going to happen in Greece? The question is not, is not the uh, rescue package. It's not the fact that they are prepared to bail them out. The, the, the question is, can the Greek government get this through parliament and can they maintain and continue to execute whatever they get through government? Because all you need is another election and someone says, oh, okay, new election, uh, new government, uh, we're going to scrap all that. And the easiest way to get in government in Greece in two or three, year, two or three months' time is if this bailout plan is accepted, someone else puts a hand up and says, listen, we, the new, the new party, we will reject everything Europe has said. Vote for us. All of a sudden, new government comes in. They just said we reject everything said because we've been mandated by our people to reject what you, you what was agreed on by the previous government, which is why the Europeans are saying, "Give us fifty billion dollars worth of property that we can put a hand on." Now, I, I don't see any Greek government ever being in a position to agree to that. Um, particularly, you know, like Santorini, you're going to hand Santorini over to uh, Germany or France and say, "Look, it's yours now if we default," because the chances of default are huge, as far as I'm concerned. You, the Greeks already got 28% unemployment, like, and they, they've got no industry. So what's the answer? You know what I reckon they should do? I reckon Greece should exit the Eurozone. I reckon Greece should put in a, then a long-term repayment plan to those countries that, they're, that, that they owe the money to, like a 30-year plan. Greece then should be allowed to run its own economy and have its own austerity measures. And one of the things they should do, they should turn Greece into what Dubai's done. Make it a, a low-tax zone, European low-tax zone. You can't do that while you're in the European Union because that's part of the rules. So out of the European Union, they can do whatever they like. Why the hell would you want to go into Dubai or Ireland, which rains all the time, or Dubai, which is all sand, or Singapore, which you can only eat rice noodles, and, and to enjoy a tax environment, a low-tax environment, when if Greece own, opens up a low-tax environment... Every European CEO in the, in the world would want to live in Greece because it's the best work place in the world to live in. Uh, all the big European countries want to have their headquarters in Greece because it's the best place to have the headquarters. It's cheap. It'll be cheap real estate, so they're only going to buy stuff really cheap. And if you said to all these European corporations, global corporations, by the way, look, we'll only tax you 5% per annum if you establish your headquarters here which means they're going to have to put the CEO there, all the CFOs, all the staff, management, then all of a sudden the other people have got to buy cars, all these people would need uh, to buy have dinner, all these people are going to have housekeepers, all these people are going to have blah, blah, blah. It, it's, and, then, and you say everybody who is, a, is a, a, an employee of this com- company that is an expatriate, in other words, comes from another country, only has to pay 5% tax. So turn Greece into Dubai. Now, if you had a choice of opening up your head office in Dubai or Greece, for me, I'd be opening up in Greece every day of the week because it's a beautiful place to live. It's got a wonderful climate all year round. It, it's got interesting places to go to. It's not a manufactured environment. It's sort of not, not steroidal. In other words, it's not sort of all hyped up. 
it's a cool place to go and, uh, you know, turn get out of the Euro, go back to the drachmas, turn into a tax-free zone, push the drachmas will allow you to build your tourism industry big time and then you've got some real industry starting to open up their headquarters in Greece. That's, to me, the solution. I mean, Chippers, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, um, this is what you should be doing, mate. Um, but the only way you can do it, you've got to exit the Eurozone. And, mate, that takes uh, lots of balls and you have to stand up to them and say, okay, we're out. But not saying you're, we're out, we're not going to pay you. We're out and we'll pay you over time. You've got to pay back what you borrowed. You must do that. And you've got to give them a viable chance to pay them back. You've got to let them know that by doing this strategy that you can pay them back. That's sort of my ideas and what I was thinking about in relation to Greece. Looking forward, this is the week ahead. Okay, Jess, what's ahead for us next, well, the next uh, seven days? What are we looking at? Well, coming up today, later today, we have the Westpac Consumer Confidence Index that's coming out. So it'll be interesting to uh, see off the back of the NAB business confidence. And also the RBA minutes, of course, next Tuesday, two weeks after the RBA interest rate announcement. And have we got someone to come in next week to Eagle's Nest? We are. We are in the process of selecting uh, one or two candidates to come in and see you and pitch face-to-face. Okay, so we, next week we'll have a, uh, a, a video of the people pitching. Nick? Yeah? Okay, great. And where, where will people be able to see that video? Well, we're going to uh, have it all available on uh, in the next few weeks on markedboris.com.au so people can actually uh, interact with the videos. Uh, interesting uh, tripod coffee, Ed Cowan's business, one of our listeners has already uh, written in and we've connected directly with Ed because they'd like to invest in his business. So, um, Serious? Yeah. So wow. Eagle's Nest is uh, is in full flight and uh, and working well. So we've got, we got an, inv- in, an investor for they're, Tripod. They're, they're already dis- <coughs> in discussion now directly with Tripod. That is so investing. cool. Well, yeah. Tripod's products are fantastic. As you know, I, I took some home and I've been using them at home. And uh, it's funny, you know, like uh, I'd say one thing I mentioned to Ed, I was only thinking this morning because I got up pretty early and uh, <clears throat> when I was having my coffee because I needed because I said I was watching the bloody Greek stuff all damn night, um, I thought oh, I'm desperate for coffee. And I went into, I got the Nespresso coffee pods and I got um, the uh, tripod coffee pods and the, the, I, had them, I got them all sort of set out and I took them out of the box and they're in different colours. And one of the things that just went through my mind is, I don't know what this is, it may be subliminal, but I actually, not based on any other thing, just chose a colour. I actually picked the coffee pod, the colour of which I liked the best. What was the colour? Light blue colour. I felt like light blue this morning. Don't ask me why. It was just something with my my brain, and I'd actually be good to ask this of a neuroscientist, but what was it that light blue represented to me this morning that... Um, the tripod coffee one was black. And I would say to um, the guys at Tripod, maybe they should do some colour um, analysis about why we choose colours. I wonder if it's uh, something very sort of deep set in our mind that um, on any particular day we might choose a different colour based mm. on how we slept the night before or how we felt from the night before. Mm. That's just something I felt. I actually thought about Tripod this morning. I thought I'd mention that to them. Um, the colour actually got me in. No, it was nothing to do with the taste. I wasn't thinking about the cost per pod. Uh, I wasn't thinking about the strength of the caffeine. I just went for a colour and I had a few choices there and I actually went to the light blue one. And uh, maybe colours, colour coding is important. I, I think with colour, I actually did a uh, meditation course a couple of years ago and uh, got deep into meditation and I saw a lot of purple and blue and I was told that that's creativity. So that right? purple and blue is creativity. 
There you so, go. So um, maybe you're having a creative Wednesday. A creative. Well, I was just noticing how you're levitating, you're floating off the ground. I can't believe it. <laughs> now I know why because how do you do that? You don't, you don't, even, don't even touch the ground. You're just sort of not even sitting on a seat. You're sort of just sort of hovering around there. Magic, magic. Ma- it is. Yeah. Uh, but so well, I, I'm, go- I'm actually going to do my own little survey. I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to actually see how I, I'm going to think. The first thing I'm going to think about is colour. Yeah. And I wonder if I had a gold one, a blue one, a, a pink one, a purple one. I should just line them all up and do a little survey for myself. I, I, I guess the Ed's done this. They, they must have done this. Analysis. I'll ask him. Yeah, if not. And I'll get an update from him as well on how the, uh, the investor talks are going. Perfect. Great. That's great news. Okay, guys, have a good day. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.